0: Hello and welcome to a new episode in New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. In each new program, we choose an important new book in the larger field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Today we will be talking with Professor Ahmad Ashamsi, Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Chicago, and about his new book, The Canonization of Islamic Law, a Social and Intellectual History. In this brilliant book, Prof. Ashamsi explores the question of how the discursive tradition of Islamic law was canonized during the 8th and 9th centuries CE. While focusing on the religious thought of the towering Muslim jurist Muhammad bin Adris al-Shafi'i and the intellectual and social milieu in which he wrote, Prof. Ashamsi presents a fascinating narrative of the transformation of the Muslim legal tradition in early Islam. He convincingly argues that that through Ashafi's intervention, a previously mimetic model of Islamic law, inseparable from communal practice, made way for a more systematic hermeneutical enterprise enshrined in a clearly defined scriptural canon. Through a rich and multi-layered analysis, Professor Ashamsi shiningly demonstrates how and why this process of canonization came about. Written in a remarkably lucid and accessible fashion, This groundbreaking study will delight and benefit specialists and non-specialists alike. In our conversation, we talked about the shift from oral to written culture in early Islam, the contrast between the normative projects of Malik and Ashrafa'i, Ashrafa'i's theory of language, the social and political reasons for the success of his legal theory, and the transmission of Ashrafa'i's thought by his students. Here now is my conversation with Professor Ahmad al-Shamsi. Hello and welcome to a new episode in New Books in Islamic Studies. In each episode, we choose a new book which is a major intervention in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Today I have the pleasure and privilege of talking to Professor Ahmad al-Shamsi, who is an assistant professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Chicago in the Department of Near Eastern Studies, and his new book, The Canonization of Islamic Law: A Social and Intellectual History published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. Hello, Ahmad. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well. Thank you for having me.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Ahmad. And as I was saying before we went live, this is just a splendid and wonderfully written book and a really multi-layered analysis of a host of issues and themes that we will have uh, a chance to discuss in a moment. Uh, But before we get to the uh, substance uh, of the book, uh, we like to begin our conversations by asking the authors about their uh, the story of their intellectual lives. How you came into the study of Islam and came to write this book. If you could tell our listeners something about uh, your background and the story of how you became interested in Islamic studies and this particular topic.
1: Um, well, I um, I went to college and I I majored in uh, in politics and, uh, and Arabic um so i i read uh, arabic um literature um uh, classical but primarily modern i was primarily interested in in, in the modern period um uh-huh. but for my for my for my paper for my uh, uh uh-huh. ba paper i um i looked at modern discussions of the um the napoleon's uh, conquest of egypt uh-huh. and uh th- there were a lot of themes classical themes um, that came up, and that frankly I, I just didn 't know how to handle right, and so I, I, I started to dip into the classical uh, uh, the classical sources and, and on the one hand, it was interesting, but on the other hand, it, it was kind of uh, uh, strange to me and then, after finishing college, I spent a year in Egypt, and I, I found um, um, I found a teacher mm-hmm. uh, to read uh, uh, a work on Islamic law uh with him and uh that was that was a very intense experience uh we read this book from cover to cover it was two volume work uh and uh and afterwards i really felt uh ready to to tackle classical texts and, and i spent many hours in uh, uh in bookshops in egypt and 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 just familiarizing myself with all these uh strange uh, and fascinating topics and um, even though I, I, I afterwards did a master's in international relations, but really my my interest uh, had kind of shifted to the pre modern period, and um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I then started my PhD at Harvard, and uh, you know there, there were there were things I was reading in, in secondary sources that, uh, uh, or oh, there were things I was looking for in secondary sources mm-hmm. that I kind of didn't find. So in a sense, m- my you know, my my, my research and and, and, uh, my PhD research and and, and now what has become my book is in a sense uh, trying to write the kind of book that I would have liked to have, you know, Mm -hmm. 15 years ago or something like this. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So let us begin the conversation uh, by uh, discussing the title of the book, which is The Canonization of Islamic Law, A Social and Intellectual History. So if I could have you say something about this term canonization which comes up in your title that there's a very interesting and specific way in which you employ and mobilize this category, the idea of canonization in early Islam. Could you say a little more about how you use this term in your book, canonization?
1: Yeah, At the outset I have to say I'm I'm generally not a friend of of big theoretical terms or discussions and I'm kind of um, I don't actually use the term uh, very much in the book uh, but I think I think I think it's, it it gives the book its structure, mm-hmm. um, and that is something that um, um, that has has the, that I've learned a lot from from reading uh, outside of the field of Islamic studies, uh, which is the uh, the phenomenon of of texts uh, changing significance historically, um, because of changing uh, social, political, and cultural uh, uh, historical circumstances. Uh, so that it is not just that a text is somehow there and, and there's only one way of, of using it and, uh, and, and uh, of this text finding its, its, its place within society, but that different historical circumstances might shift the, the relevant usage and the authority of a text. Uh, and so the, the point that I'm trying to make with this title is that... Um, um, uh, I argue that there, there is a point in the development of Islamic law uh, when it becomes canonized, when there is uh, a very specific way in which um, uh, authority uh, is transferred from from the community uh, as an interpretive community uh, to uh, a group of scholars who are explaining and uh, uh, interpreting texts, uh, and, and 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 the shift happens because there is. Uh, a kind of a growing uh, 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 kind of suspicion regarding the communal practice and the wisdom of the communal practice, the communal tradition, the continuity of this tradition, uh, and that uh, particularly a um, uh, as as a theorist, as a legal theorist who writes the first book on legal theory, uh, is somebody who um, uh, lays out a, th- uh, a, a theory of revelation. Um, that says we don't really need communal practice. Uh, uh, revelation as texts, uh, as the Quran, and as the texts of the prophetic statements is self-explanatory. Uh, so we do not need to, to see these sources within a context of communal practice. Uh, this communal practice sometimes distorts these sources. Rather, uh, these sources... And uh, the proper understanding of, la- of, of language uh, and the the, the the proper deployment of hermeneutic techniques um, uh, will uh, yield a much much clearer and a much uh, 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 more consistent law than the kind of communal uh, legal traditions that that uh, he found when he was uh, uh, when he began his journey. Okay.
0: Now, one of the most fascinating shifts that you talk about very early on in your book, and you convincingly argue, is this shift from an oral uh, tradition to a written culture, and this culture of literacy that you talk about, that in many ways was exemplified uh, by Malik's Mowatta. Uh, could you explain a bit more the significance of this culture of literacy, this shift from an oral to a written culture, Uh to the intellectual history of Islamic law in early Islam and the place of Malik's Muwatta within that narrative.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something that that has struck me. Um, uh, you know, when I came into Islamic studies, s- some of the most interesting and thought-provoking studies that that I uh, encountered early on uh, uh, works by Gregor Schöler, for example, on on, on different types of orality and writing. Um, but really, that nobody had taken that forward and to ask well, okay, so we have the emergence of, of, of Islamic literature sometime in the second century, in the second uh, Islamic century. What's the influence of this shift on the actual thought? I mean, it's not just, uh, oh, um, you know, we don't really have books before that, so, you know, we don't know whether they are thon- authentic or not. It's not just an authenticity problem, but it's also, you know, it's, it's not the same thing to have a scholarly discourse in the oral realm. Uh, is a very different thing than to have a written scholarly discourse. And what does it? Uh, first of all, uh, um, what could be the the motivation of having this uh, this shift? And secondly, what is the, the the simple kind of mechanical? Or I mean, what 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 is the uh, uh, the, the result the effect of this shift on on the very content of this thought and and the and the logic of development that follows afterwards? Um, so. um, um what, what what struck me about Malik's motto is that um, um, it seems, and, and and this is something that I'm uh, um, that from 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 other pieces of evidence is is is, is quite clear to me uh, is that uh, that by writing this work, Malik was aiming at cementing a communal tradition or preserving a communal tradition. That was on the verge of 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 of, of change or of, of being lost, and what is what is what is so interesting is that on the one hand, you know, we think about Malikism as the the doctrine of Medina, uh, but really after Malik, um, the center of Malikism is not beneath Medina anymore. Uh, it leaves Medina, so by writing a book, um, you can basically. Turn a local legal tradition mobile and and set it loose from 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 the actual lo- locality um, uh, in which it was produced, uh, and it, it it can thrive in other places. Uh, so there is there is um, this strangely paradox um, uh, process where on the one hand you write a book to preserve a local tradition, but by doing this you kind of uh, um, make it movable. Uh, you 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 um, allow it to actually leave that locality and 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 settle in uh, in Spain or in uh, North Africa or in Egypt or in uh, Iraq, um, and so uh, that th- that is one. Um, uh, that is one importance and the other importance is that that with the, with the coming of written works you have a different logic of of scholarly involvement with each other you don't anymore have uh, these oral exchanges uh or, well, i mean they still exist they still happen but you have an, a different kind of exchange which is these written refutations that can happen over over space and time so you know you can write a refutation of uh, uh uh you know of Malik from from Iraq and then somebody uh else can reply to this uh and uh, and uh, what i'm trying to show in the book is is that in in your written en- in your written engagement with the with a different scholar you, you use a totally different type of argumentation uh than in in, in a, a potential oral uh, uh debate and so um, i think the the development of uh higher hermeneutic thought is part and parcel of uh, uh, bringing scholarly discussions from an oral into a written
0: realm. Terrific. Now, one of the key themes that dominates much of your book, especially the early chapters, is this really interesting and fascinating relationship between Ashafi and Malik and the uh, contrasting understandings of tradition and law, which centered on these two figures. So could you tell us something about Shafi's evolution that you discuss—a very fascinating evolution—from being one of Malik's disciples to arguably his most formidable critic. Um, so,
1: I—I I think it's. Um, the, I mean, the 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 real backbone of my study is a is a close reading of a Shafi's Kitab al-Um that we have today in a critical edition of of ten volumes and. Um. Uh, I think if if you read this book carefully, um, and the, the interesting thing about it—it's not a single book that was all at a specific point—but it's it's uh, uh, really a chef's work from throughout his lifetime uh, are brought together within this work, and you can see different layers of his of his interaction, and you can see um, uh, what is what is so remarkable is that Shafi has actually recorded his debates, uh, and he says you know he's explicit about it. Um, he, he, um, uh, you know, he, he tells you when he is uh, when he's debating the Iraqis when he's debating uh, Shaybani uh, Abu Hanifa's student uh, Shaybani. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can see the early and these, these are the early texts, the, the the most early layers of text that, that we find in his work. Uh, so we can see him as a student of of Malik going to Iraq and engaging these. Hanafi uh, uh, scholars in debate, and we can see that at the beginning he is still uh, very much uh, a scholar in the mold of uh, of Malik. He still uh, argues uh, on the basis of uh, 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 either Medinan practice or, or the the practice of the of the people of Hijaz. Um, but uh, it's also interesting to see how uh, how he encounters. Uh, more systematic legal thought, more and uh, kind of principles of interpretation. Uh, for example, within this debate with uh, with the Shabani, with Abu Hanifa's student Shabani, he encounters a, a, a specific th- a theorization of hadith, uh, namely hadith as um, uh, as a kind of secondary hermeneutic tool towards the Quran. So the the the, the hadith, uh, as the Shabani puts it, there is uh, what clarifies the divine intention in the Quran um, so th- th- this level I mean this kind of um, uh, hermeneutic principle we do not find in Malik's thought uh, so we we, we find uh, a Shafi encountering these ideas among the the the, the Hanafis in Iraq and um, a Shafi is taking these ideas and he uh, he uses them to critique the iraqis as well so he is somebody who takes uh, his 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 medinan background his experiences in iraq and um, and uh... uh, uh who um, uh... Who, who critiques the iraqis for their own shortcomings and for for failing to to live up to their own uh... to their own principles mm-hmm. um, and he is very very much uh, in, in, in contact with um, uh, the the people of Hadith, Ahmed Ibn Hanbal and his crew in Iraq, mm-hmm. um, and he becomes um, uh, convinced of the uh, uh, the kind of uh, scientific nature of this project of 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 massive Hadith uh, collections, etc., etc. And he um, uh, so he um, uh, he develops a a legal approach that is that is not reliant anymore on local traditions, mm-hmm. and so what I what I argue is that both the 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 Hijazi, I, the the, the Medina and, and, the, and the, the Meccan legal traditions, and the Iraqi traditions, that I mean, the Kufan tradition, um, is uh, these are legal traditions that have that see revelation through through the lens of local practice, so they would. Uh, accept a hadith uh, as long as it has been accepted within that legal tradition. Um, and uh, uh, um, if it's from the outside, if it's from, you know, if, if somebody walks into Kufa, or walks into Baghdad from, let's say, uh, uh, transoxiana uh, uh, with a hadith, uh, that would have no impact on them uh, because it is not, uh, as the as the uh, as the Iraqis would say, it's not mashur it's not known among us, uh, so it's not it, it has no authority. This does not mean, and I think this is that that is the, here the the point where I disagree so strongly with with Yosef Shacht. This this does not mean that uh, these legal schools didn't have hadith. That is not the point of these discussions I think this is a fundamental misreading of these discussions. It's not about that these legal schools existed without hadith. And that uh, Ashrafay somehow imposes that on them. Uh, they had their own hadith, but but they only used the hadith that were that were embedded in their local tradition. And Ashrafay said there is there is formally no difference between these hadith and other hadith as long as the chain of narration, the isnad, is sound. Um, so he is de-regionalization. He's uh, he's he's uh, he's uh, uh, universalizing uh, hadith um uh, and um, mm-hmm. uh, builds up a system within which you, you do not need local tradition uh, to figure out what what the law is
0: now, with your permission, Ahmed, I want to spend a bit more time actually on on this comparison between Malik and Ashafi because it's such a productive aspect of your book. Uh, could you say a bit more about the competing imaginaries of Muslim normativity or tradition? which you see being articulated by Ashafi and Malik and their projects of Islamic law. And, for example, at one moment in your book, you very beautifully contrast these two uh, models, and you write, the essentially communal activity of mimesis gave way to the individual task of hermeneutics." This comes on page 71 of uh, Ahmad shamsis book, The Canonization of Islamic Law. What is this contrast between a mimetic versus a hermeneutic understanding of law, and what are sort of the larger philosophical underpinnings of these two projects of how law, revelation, and tradition are being imagined by Malik and Ashrafi?
1: Well, wait, this is—I um, I remember very early in my in, in grad school, I, I was—I um, uh, met a uh, an anthropologist who had spent in uh, who had spent some time. Um, in uh, in Afghanistan in the in the seventies, hmm. and uh, he told me an interesting um, anecdote about um, a villager. A villager he had talking uh, he had uh, talked about about Islam, hmm. and the villager had argued that uh, in Islam you can basically have whatever up to eight wives. I think he he said that, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, you know, American non-Muslim anthropologist said, well, no, you know, if four is the maximum. And the villager says, no, no, you, you don't know what you're talking about. And uh, uh, eventually they had gone to some mullah to ask him. And the mullah said, of course, you know, it's, the maximum is four wives. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, the villager still was not convinced. Uh-huh. And he said, why, what's your argument? And the villager said, well, you know, we in my village, we are Muslims and, there's the one headman, and he has eight wives. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. that's it. You know, that's I don't need you know some mullah. He doesn't give, have to give me some evidence. Right, right. So we have, you know, we as a community are Muslims, and that's what that's what happens in our village. So that's that's what what uh, uh, what is true. And you know, okay. at the time I was thinking this is just some sort of whatever, some cute anecdote. That w- what what's the relevance of this? You know, it, it just right. shows cut kind of level of, of 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 lack of education or something, but. But then, if you think about it historically, um, um, a community that has prophecy among them, uh, uh, and, and you know, uh, a community that has grown in a place. And, and here I, I think it's, it's important to, to show the, 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 the difference between uh, uh, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, that, that in Christianity and Judaism, you have these, these, uh, these raptures. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Judaism has uh, you know has Babylonian captivity. Uh, uh, Christianity has uh, you know centuries of of being uh, under uh, an underground religion. But you have a you have an actual you know continuity. You have you know the under under Muhammad, Medina becomes uh, autonomous uh, and maintains. You know you know under Malik's uh, time, it's still autonomous. You know it's still. Uh, there, there is a there 's a clear continuity a political continuity a communal continuity um, uh, so uh, law has has a um, um, it has it has a precedent about itself so what, what, what i what i what i call mimetic law as a mimetic quality is something uh, uh, um, if you have this if you have this this uh, continuity in a in a community that that law itself is is you know is its own justification you know we've done it like this before it was founded like this from the prophet and his companions so it's it's authentic um it so it's, it is not a hermeneutic exercise in the sense of oh we have to sit down and 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 you know l- you know look for the verse where it says this uh, but rather, there is there is a there is a wider sense of um, of communal uh, authenticity that lends that that makes a connection between the law and, and and religion. Not in the sense that oh well they didn't care about the Quran or about the Sunnah, but there's there's a feeling about it about there is you know there's things in in society and and we, we know this about Malik. I mean there's uh, 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 things like uh, you know the, the the call to prayer where he says, well, I'm not interested in what your evidence is. You know, we've had this call for prayer since the Prophet's time. Um, that, that, that's itself uh, a proof. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the issue with, with the Shafi is that Shafi was also a, a very historical mind. Mm-hmm. And his, his break with Malik is basically his realization that tradition changes mm-hmm. and that tradition does not stay the same. Uh, and what do we do? Um, you know what, what? What is the way in which we can um, uh, maintain uh, authenticity, uh, maintain um, a relationship to to revelation? And his solution is to say, well, actually, revelation uh, it, revelation itself is um, uh, is giving us the clues. We we actually do not need communal tradition. Communal tradition. Especially now, I mean, you know, he says this explicitly in in, in some discussion. Where he says, you know, we have generation, we have you know four, five, six generations between us and the prophet now. Uh, what do we do? You know, it, you know that we we have to come to, to terms with this. Uh, we we cannot think anymore that there is this this unchanging tradition that connects us to that to those times because we know that cha- that 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 positions have changed. And he gives examples um, uh, how positions have changed over time. So he says, simply saying that this is the, this is uh, our authenticity and and our connection to uh, revelation is is guaranteed by tradition. That doesn't work anymore, you know. Simply by the by, by the by the fact that time has passed um, and that, that 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 the tradition has changed. Um, so there is a, and that that's what I mean with canonization. There is a um, uh, uh, removal of uh, uh, of law from community towards. Uh, the interpretation of texts. And who are the people who into, interpret texts? They are jurists. So there is a new so – on the one hand, there's hermeneutics, and the people who carry this out are, are, are scholars. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying that there were not scholars before that, but the kind of scholarship they were involved in is now a different kind of uh, um,
0: uh, scholarship. Ashafi clearly is a, the major protagonist of your book, but one of the things that you do wonderfully well is connecting Ashafi's thought with the larger intellectual and social milieu in which he was operating and showing ways in which he developed his own thought in conversation with his intellectual opponents, often through debate uh, with uh, Malikis and Hanafis and so forth. And you've already touched on this uh, a few minutes ago, but if I could have you elaborate further on how did Ashafi's legal thought mature through his debates with his intellectual antagonists, such as the Hanafis? Uh, what do we do about those debates, and how did they impact uh, the maturation of Ashafi's legal thought? Uh,
1: so there is um, in my book, I I, uh, I talk about three main strands with with whom uh, Shafi interacts. On the one hand, um, there is his, I mean, his first polemical engagement is with Hanafis in Iraq. Um, then when he goes to, to Egypt, um, uh, he starts to criticize his, uh, his, his original uh, uh, teacher, Malik. Um, but there is also already a, um, uh, a polemical engagement with a specific kind of uh, Mu'tazili, Theological uh, uh, strand, uh, particularly um, prominent among them, um, a scholar called Ibn al um, uh, This is a scholar who who rejects all hadith, um, and uh, and I think this is this is a, a very crucial point, and it might actually have been the the, the, the initial uh, motivation for Shafi to write on, on legal theory. This this encounter with a uh, with the theologian who rejected hadith. Uh, in total. Uh, so uh, I think one of the, the issues is the, uh, one of the central issues is the, the question of what sunnah is. Uh, what is this, this normative practice uh, that, um, uh, that uh, is not from the Quran, but that is, that is, that we have to emulate. Um, um One one of the uh, 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 interesting polemical engagements that we see in in, in Shafis writing today is um, um, that it was the Hanafis who, for the first time, uh, uh, to begin with, who who criticized Malik and saying, well, he says something as sunnah, but this could be hadith or it could be non-hadith. So uh, 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 just the the, the practice of Medina for him can also establish a kind of sunnah, and so he's not uh, he's not clear in that. Um, uh, at first, Ashrafay uh, uh, actually defended Malik and said, "No, no, anything that was uh, that that the Maliki that the Medinans believed to be Sunnah goes back to the Prophet." And then, you know, the next paragraph clearly Shafi added later on in his life, and he said, "Look, I have actually I've changed my mind." Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I actually I'm convinced that that that's actually true. The Medinans do sometimes call something sunnah that has, that, that where there's no hadith, where there's nothing that we can trace back to Muhammad. Uh, so sunnah is only hadith, and this you know I, mean, I think that this this is something that 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 already uh, earlier historians have, have pointed out that this is some that this is uh, uh, something that that the shafi pushes uh, in in his uh, uh, legal theory. Um, there's also a critique of the Hanafis where Shafi says, "Well, you, you yourself are not uh, consistent here. You sometimes use hadith and sometimes you do not use the hadith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to you have to consistently use any hadith uh, uh, whose ch- uh, chain of transmission is reliable." Um, um, so his primary uh, critique of, of Hanafis is uh, the use of weak hadith all the disregard of hadith um, and uh, um, uh so um, the, the, the 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 these polemical engagements and his his cosmopolitanism the fact that he uh, he begins his his intellectual life in the hejaz uh he has crucial encounters in iraq that, um, and then he he ends his life uh, in, in egypt um, uh Really show him as somebody who, um, uh, who seeks to transcend local, regional legal traditions and develop something that can transcend these these legal tradi- these regional traditions. And what you me- what you mentioned about the kind of um, you know the, the subtitle of the book, um, a social intellectual history, is that I think you can only really understand this uh, as part and parcel of of much wider. Uh, social developments in the in the Muslim world, uh, namely that um, uh, this this regional model of of law just doesn't doesn 't do it anymore uh, we have uh, and, 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 uh, you know I, I have two chapters where i uh, uh, go into quite uh, quite some detail about egypt and what i 'm trying to show here is that uh, that we can see this um, uh, these social changes. In detail, if we look at the details of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 you know, Egypt as a case study, um, where where you have this original society of of, uh, uh, of Muslims, this small, cl- close knit uh, Arab society that has a very strong sense of of, of tradition, of you know, I, I give an example um, uh, 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 about. Um, how the the communal prayer is set up uh, in the in the central mosque in Fustat in Egypt, um, and the, the people have a, have a very strong sense of that is how we've always ha- done it here. So there's a, there's a strong sense of a local legal tradition. But with time, you can see that you know you have foreigners come in, and you have non-Muslims converting to Islam. They have no, they have much less. Uh, 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 they feel much less allegiance to some sort of tradition, communal tradition. You know, they've converted to Islam. They are much more open to 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 listen to the to the argument about the Quran, about what the Prophet said, rather than some some local tradition that is established within a specific close knit, you know, ethnically harmonious uh, community uh, then then uh, uh, to uh, to listen to a uh, m- much more s- systematic legal theory that uh, and, 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 and here a theory of language comes in where basically all you really need to know is need to know the Arabic language properly um, mm-hmm. um, so that is that is a shift away from communal practice to a more hermeneutic understanding of revelation as mm-hmm basically uh, 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 um, text mm-hmm.
0: so building building on the comment that you just uh, made I mean one of the central arguments that you make very convincingly in this book is that uh, Shafi's hermeneutics central to this hermeneutics was his conception of language mm-hmm. so if you could continue this thought how was a Shafi's conception of language connected to how he understood Law and revelation. What is the theory of language that you so wonderfully uh, detail and theorize in your book? So, um,
1: um, the, the 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 basic uh, thought that that chef has about about revelation is that it's there to, to to express the intention of the speaker, and that's the idea of bayan. Uh, um, and that's that's very much derived from a reading of the Quran itself. Uh, 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 a Quran uh, a kitab mu'bin, Quran al-mubin, kitab al-mubin, um, uh, um, um, to clarify that the, that the Quran speaks about itself as uh, as, as clear, as clarifying. Uh, but at the same time, it also speaks about language as a um, uh, as a tool for 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 uh, um, expressing clearly yourself clearly. Allah hu That says Surah Rahman. God has taught human beings to express themselves clearly, um, and so Ashraf's um, uh, legal theory is basically um, setting out how revelation does that, how it expresses itself clearly, uh, how it, what what the techniques are. Inherit in the Arabic language, uh, so that you that you can understand what it says. Um, so, in 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 many respects, this is this is something about um, uh, learning the conventions of the language, uh, and uh, uh, and saying that revelation happens within ordinary language. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's obviously specifically. I mean, it's it's uh, it's particularly elegant. It's particularly clear. But at the end of the day, you know. Uh, us knowing the the rules of of arabic uh, uh, and not 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 i mean i'm not saying just the grammatical rules but the way within which uh, 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 meaning is conveyed in arabic that is basically what what is needed to understand revelation uh, you do not need an infallible imam you do de- you de- you do not need to know how um, uh, earlier community you know earlier generations of people have understood this you you basically you know at the, at the heart of it you only need to understand revelation itself the texts the statements of revelation itself and I think that is that is um, uh, in that extent that is really new that is really novel and um, 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 this uh, this uh, uh, this attention to, to, uh, to Arabic, and th- that's something that has puzzled people in the in Shafi's writing. Mm-hmm. Some people have, have accused the Shafi of, uh, um, you know, what is this, some sort of Shu'ubiyah, some sort of uh, Arab nationalism or Arab chauvinism or something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm very much convinced, and I argue in my book, that, that this is just an understanding of revelation as language, uh, as, as, a, as an alternative model to understand revelation through the way it has already been received uh, within communities. Um, and so the, uh, um, when I talk about uh, Ashafei's novel uh, understanding of, of, of language, it is that um, uh, for Ashafei, the, the, the prime metaphor is the metaphor of the Qibla, mm-hmm. of the direction of prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there is one direction to which you're meant to pray. And similarly, uh, uh, each question of the law uh, has one uh, correct um, has one correct answer. Um, uh, very often, we, we we might not be able to uh, to establish the answer with with hundred percent certainty. Uh, but at the end of the day, there is still one thing that God intends us to do. Um, and and so the the um, um, the, the structure of the law is: um, we try to discover the law, so it, it is not a, a process of constructing the law. Uh, it is not a process of, and, and that is something that uh, uh, that comes up in the critique of uh, of Medinan practice. That um, um, Medinians kind of acknowledge that their rules change, or, or have changed historically, um, and both. The Hanafis and Ash'afis uh, then uh, critique the Medina and say, so, so clearly at some point your practice must have been wrong. Uh, you know, if you if you keep ch- you know changing uh, your, your positions, then your practice uh, is clearly not some sort of the unchanging uh, uh, authentic preservation uh, uh, of, uh, of prophetic practice, but it changes itself. And if you can't justify it, or uh, then then uh, uh, then you are basically just uh, 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 um, justifying everything as as uh, as your local practice, but it's uh, it's 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 your own it's your own opinions, it's your own subjective opinions, and so I think part of the uh, the shift towards legal theory that we see with the Shafi writing the first work on on, on legal theory is is a kind of scientificization of legal thought, uh, a way of saying that you have to actually justify it. It is not enough uh, uh, to you having a big name. Uh, it is not enough uh, uh, to this you know being dominant in your region, but you have to actually show us what your evidence is and show us how you put this evidence together and why that is the right way of putting it together and um, uh, as, as I tried to show in the in the later uh, um, uh, chapters of my book that uh, this approach to law also affected other fields of of thought uh, it, it affected hadith it affected tafsir it affected uh, uh, um, you know theology and, and, and literature etc etc um uh, and and in in a sense it's it's uh, um uh, it can i mean and, and that, that's another thing that, that surprised me Th- these people clearly had read a chafe and they they were, they were clearly in conversation with him uh so his his thought is not simply a uh, um, a milestone in legal thought but but his theorization of, of, of revelation in general um, affected people's thought about how religious topics and fields work, uh, but not just religious uh, topics because you know, he's talking about language in general, how language works, how, w- what the uh, connection is between uh, meaning and form. Uh, and uh, so it even
0: affected uh, people like, like Jahed. Now, one of the major okay. strengths of this book uh, is the way that it seamlessly connects intellectual and social history. Uh, not only do you conduct a very multi-layered and close reading and analysis of uh, religious and legal texts, but you put those texts in conversation with the larger social, political conditions uh, operative at the time of Ishafe's writing. And you specifically target the question of why did this project succeed in the way that it did? Why did it achieve the kind of success that it did. So let me pose that question that you answer in your book. What were some of the major political and social factors and conditions that uh, made his thoughts so appealing uh, and successful uh, at that moment and beyond? And you've already touched on parts of it when you talked about the conversion of uh, non-Arabs into Islam, etc. But there are other factors also, right? I mean, there's um, I mean
1: well Maybe to digress a little bit uh, f- for the beginning of of, of this answer, um, I had to, you know, in, in in developing this project, I had to uh, struggle a lot with uh, skepticism towards these early sources. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I uh, um, this is this is less visible in this book. I've, I've written it was more visible in my dissertation. I've I've, uh, I've published a separate article on this uh, on the authenticity of these early sources. Uh, so. Um, Part of my my uh, um, my interest in writing this book is to show how you know what how rich a picture it is possible to paint with the available uh, sources and with the available you know bringing these different sources into conversation with each other. Um, And what surprises is me. uh, What surprises me is is how much uh, of of this uh, information can be verified. I mean, for example, there's this one thing that really struck me is that. uh, the, the the governor of Egypt Ahmed Ibn Tulun, governor in the in the late uh, uh, third uh, century of the Hijra, um, who is a uh, who is a big uh, uh, supporter of the Shafis, um, you know you you find an anecdote to say that he brought a Shafi student Rabia, into his house to teach his children and to members of his household, and you know you, you find this anecdote and you think well you know is this true is this not true. Uh, um, and then you find lots and lots of information that corroborates it. And you find information that, uh, in in very different works, that members of Ahmad Ibn Tulun's household um, go to, to to Iraq and teach Ash'ari's words there. Uh, so you you know it, if you if you bring these pieces of information together, I think it, it is it is possible to corroborate a lot of uh, 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 quite detailed information and 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 and. Uh, paint a, a quite detailed image of, of of what was happening, not just in Shafi's lifetime, but uh, in the lifetime of Shafi's students as well. And uh, uh, my, my book uh, ends with uh, with the death of Shafi's last student, who died sixty six years after Shafi died. Right. Um, so, um, uh, apart from from wider social uh, developments, uh, the kind of uh, breakdown of these 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 uh, close knit conquest societies. Um, um, there is also patterns of patronage um, and and especially the this uh, i mean patronage and persecution uh, the shafeis uh, uh, suffered a lot under the uh the mihna mm-hmm. and uh, what what surprised me in in in, uh, in looking at the historical source of the mihna is how much of it was actually uh, 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 had a lot to do with uh, with the legal positions rather than with theological positions so the the uh, judge who is you know who is really responsible for the uh, for the harshness of the Mahna in Egypt was a dedicated Hanafi uh, jurist who took the opportunity to basically exterminate or try to exterminate uh, the Shafi and Maliki school in, uh, in Egypt uh, and then afterwards you have the rise of the Tulunids, the Tulunid the, uh, dynasty who um, um, uh, a dynasty that uh tries to establish itself uh, uh kind of semi independently or fully independently and uh they are uh, adopting the the, the shafis as uh kind of a via media between the the Hana- the, the, the the hanafis who are by that time very closely associated to the Abbasid uh Iraqi uh political center and also different from the Maliki's who are very much associated with the old elites in Egypt. So uh uh, here, legal schools become a kind of uh identity marker and a uh, um, uh you know part and parcel of the political uh history of the of the time but i think what 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 my uh discussion about politics and patronage show is also that there was relatively limited scope uh, uh while uh the, the the patronage of the the Toulounids may uh, meant that uh, shafi's works were taught on a large scale openly uh, in, uh, many of the, the transmissions uh, egypt became a center of of, uh, of teaching of teaching shafi's and a lot of his works were taught at that time um, pol- political power was also relatively limited in um, uh, in affecting the intellectual uh... uh currents uh, i.e., even uh, uh, under time of um, uh, of religious persecution, these uh, intellectual trends were not, uh, in fact, exterminated and they survived. So, um, while I show that there is a significance of, of politics, uh, there's also li- there's also limits to, to the political analysis. Um, but um, um, uh, as a, as a social history, uh, I think there is there is uh, uh, there there is issues of personality. They're very different. You know, if if you want to be a successful scholar, you need to have good students who uh, uh, who write, who continue a legacy, who are uh, not uh, uh, breaking off and developing their own system. And I think here I, I go into um, um, uh, my specific understanding what a mad, madhhab is, what a legal school is. Um, uh, so, I mean, I'm 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 wrestling in this book also with the question of of you know, at what point do you have a school? Um, we have uh, a, lo- a lot of uh, 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 discussions about this previously, and uh, I think um, uh, I- I'm convinced that uh, what you, you know, you, you have the emergence of legal schools as soon as th- the student of the of the uh, of the founder start to write books that are in a way secondary sources to, us, uh, that, that are somehow serving uh, uh, the works of the founder, i.e., that either uh, elucidate parts of it all that abridged, bridget that commented uh, you know that, that that initiated a commentary tradition um and uh, you can see that 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 uh, took place in egypt and it actually didn't quite uh took place uh, among uh, shafey students in in uh, in iraq he also had students in iraq but it, it's really the the egyptian students who mm-hmm. uh, uh, who started engaging in their, in their own literary uh, ventures that were that were uh, focused on serving a Shafi'i's literature, mm-hmm. and that therefore created this uh, this, this school literature.
0: Let's mm-hmm. let's talk a bit more about uh, Shafi'i students that occupy much of the latter half of your book. Uh, firstly, uh, who are the major students uh, that, that you focus on uh, of Shafi and how do they go about uh, transmitting and also reconfiguring a discourse? And you also make a very interesting point about how the methods of hadith transmission. Uh, impacted and informed the transmission of Ashafi's thoughts. Uh, so, if you could also talk a bit more about that relationship between hadith transmission and the transmission of Ashafi's thought, and his the role of his students in the transmission of his discourse.
1: Yeah. So the 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 what, what struck me so much in uh, in in writing about um, in arguing for the authenticity of Ashafi's works is how diligent his students were in uh, telling us exactly. I mean. Uh, what they were doing, and it actually starts already with the Shafei eh, in his own works. I mean, he is he is a stickler. Um, I mean, to the to the. I mean, like he, he sometimes he finds, uh, you know, he has his own notes that he has from when he studied with Malik, for example. Um, and sometimes he finds things in it that he can't quite believe. Uh, like there, like there's something he, there's a feminine ending, even though there shouldn't be a feminine ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he com- compares his notes with other people who studied with Malik, and he finds that his notes are different from all other people. Uh, so at that point, I'm convinced that he made a spelling mis- you know, he just made a spelling mistake. But he doesn't, you know, he will not do this. You know, he, he will try to, uh, you know, that's his notes. You know, he, and, and according to the hadith uh, uh, method of transmission, he cannot transmit something else. Right? He has to transmit his notes. Uh, so he is uh, uh, he's extremely diligent in telling you. Uh, his His doubts, but at the same time you know that's these are his notes, and he just wants to let you know and he 's checked with many other people and and can 't possibly be this way and anyway so uh, that kind of uh, uh, of precision um, uh, you find among his students um, who tell you exactly which part of the work they 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 heard from him, or you know they might have missed parts of it from him, so they they studied with with other uh, of his students. Uh, and we find this also in the next generation, and so on and so on. So we, ha- w- from very early onwards, uh, you have a whole world of le- not just within his own text, but also texts that were produced uh, 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 at the same time, and and who tell tell you how they learned about this text, uh, where they studied with them. It's th- it's this uh, it's the, uh, uh, the the method of, of hadith transmission, which is obviously very very much. Uh, um, uh, uh, careful to uh, maintain the, the the authenticity of the text uh, was also used in transmitting non hadith texts, even these early legal texts, mm-hmm. and um, that that is something that uh, that has surprised me. To what extent they, I mean, to, to the extent to which students, shafi students, went in ascertaining the authenticity of of specific statement or specific uh, uh, epistle that they transmit. Um, and uh I think taking all these things together it, it is it is remarkably uh, uh successful and convincing um that that th- these texts actually you know have survived in, in uh, uh, to, to, an, uh, uh, to to a large extent uh unchanged from 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 that time um, so uh, aschafe has has several main students the the the, the one that i uh, got most acquainted with is, is elti was the, the first successor of a chefe, eh? and the reason why I was acquainted with him so so well is that that 's basically the beginning of my project. Um, I discovered his his manuscript uh, his, his his abridgment of a chef's work uh, in my first year in graduate school um, and that really was the beginning of of uh, me believing that this is an interesting topic because um, uh, if one starts reading about Islamic law, everybody claims that the early period has been done. Or, you know, everybody focuses on the early period. Or, you know, Islamic studies has an obsession with origins. Um, But, uh, you know, I was 15 minutes into my research in the Dar al Kutub in uh, in Egypt, and I had already found something that nobody knew existed. So that kind of convinced me that, you know, this hasn't been studied very much uh, uh, at all, in fact. Um, and uh, so th- th- this was the first uh, student of Shafi I, I, I got in, in contact with Rabia, uh, second student he's the main transmitter of Shafi's works, he was the guy who himself didn't actually write anything but he was um, he was the the most uh, reliable person to transmit his works and he was the one who, who survived the Shafi the longest, he survived him by 66 years and uh, the third student is Al-Muzani um, who might have been the most uh, kind of the best jurist in his own right. Uh, he wrote also an abridgment of Shafii's work, and and that became the the basis of all the large uh, commentaries on Shafii law that were written in the in the particularly in the fifth century, in the fifth Hijri century. Um, but then there is, I mean, there is um, we have names of over a hundred students of the uh, um and some of them, um, you know, stayed in other, you know, went to other schools. There was uh, one of his main uh, students was a, a very prominent maliki student um, and uh, so, so that there there's a whole uh, group of students uh, who we can follow after his his death ahmed ibn Hanbal was, was a was a uh, you know studied with the shafii and uh uh ahmed's uh, son is uh, uh, is is quoting from ahmed ibn Hanbal's handwritten copy of the shafii's work so clearly, I mean, this was a serious student. So th- there's there's many people who studied the Shafi, whether it's in Iraq or uh, or in uh, uh, or in Egypt, and um, but you only have the development of a relatively small core who actually carry this thought forward. Uh, but w- what is interesting is that you know different students carry his thoughts forward differently, um, and that's uh, uh, that's interesting that we have people with different. Um, who see his his influence differently uh, who see the, the importance of his work differently uh, is it is it primarily about his uh, uh, um, his uh, um, uh, his work on hadith so his his first student al-buwayti was much more interested in hadith um, while al-muzani was much uh, was 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 uh, less interested in hadith he was more interested in in uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, analogical reasoning and extending a Shafii's idea uh, further that way, uh, so there's there's as is to be understood uh, different interpretations of this founder from the very first generation that we uh, that we that we encounter. Uh, but what they have in common is that they they distinguish between a Shafii, the scholar, and a Shafii's method. So they can. Disagree with him on individual points, but they adopt his overall um, uh, his overall project. Uh, so they might kind of overrule uh, individual opinions that he has by means of his own thought. So they 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 actually render his ideas more consistent within themselves. Uh, so I think that that is that is. Also, an important step on the on the way towards a legal school uh, to say that this is um, um, uh, it, it, it's not it's not. Uh, I reject his 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 uh, his work, or I totally accept it, hundred percent, and I just follow every one of his opinions. But rather to say that, well, okay, according to his own methodological uh, rules that he sets out. Uh, uh, I correct this one opinion here, this one detail here, or this one detail there. So that is a new kind of legal engagement mm-hmm. uh, with somebody's work. Um, uh, and I think that characterizes a legal school, uh, that you have a, what I call a kind of paradigmatic legal school, and I've am taken that a little bit from um, kind of philosophy of science, um, that that science takes place within, par- within scientific paradigms. Uh, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Uh, but you, but you rather take, you know, whatever you take Newton's physics, and then you work within the system of Newton's physics. Uh, um, uh, so uh, um, these schools that were that were um, that that called themselves by a founder were schools that developed this kind of paradigm of what this founder's approach is, uh, and then, you know, worked from from there rather than. Uh, uh, each jurist kind of starting from scratch
0: So Ahmed, as we are approaching uh, the end of our time here uh, let me ask you what uh, are you working on these days and what can we expect to read from you uh, in the coming future
1: Well I mean it, it, it might uh, at first uh, at first glance seem um, strangely um, unconnected to this to this book uh, but my, my, my next book is going to be on um, the changes that took place in Islamic thought with the coming of the pr- of print uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, so, um, I'm looking primarily at the role of um, uh, of editors in you know in choosing from this vast pool of of of, of manuscripts uh, and uh, deciding which texts were worthy of editing. And uh, how they basically uh, constructed and, uh, and and developed our view of what the, the kind of the Islamic the classics of Islamic thought are, uh, and um, um, the reason why this actually isn't isn't that far away from my from my first project is uh, I'm looking again at a moment of of transition. Uh, um, in the first book, uh, I looked primarily on the transition from the oral to the written. Uh, now i 'm looking from the you know on the transition of of manuscript culture to print culture, mm-hmm. um, but it 's also something about um, these 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 editors who basically in, in Western scholarship are almost unknown uh, they did uh, they have affected our view of what the tradition is in an enormous way, uh, but they have also brought away they have also brought about quite a dramatic change within the Islamic discourse um, regarding you know what the tradition is, so a lot of these early texts that we read uh, on the you know ninth century tenth century eleventh century uh, were almost forgotten or unknown in even in, even in the early 20th century and there was a relatively small group of editors um, who brought these texts back into circulation even though there was only one or two copies left in the world um, so uh, I want to show that 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 uh, um, um, this is uh, th- this is quite an uh, an important shift within even Muslim understandings of what their own uh, intellectual tradition is, uh, and it also has I think an interesting angle on the on the topic of Orientalism, uh, because um, of course orient- Orientalist scholars were also in the, in that process of editing texts. And there is very interesting interactions going on between these editors mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and Oriental, uh, Orientalist scholars, both positive and, and, and negative and, and critical. Uh, and I think, you know, th- there is some, some some critiques of Orientalism that I found f- from the 1920s or 30s that are, uh, I think, more sophisticated than what Edward Said wrote, uh, uh, you know, half a century later. Uh, but it's... Um, uh, you know, in terms of time, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty far removed. Uh, in terms of place, it still focuses mainly on Egypt. Uh, but, of course, there are a lot of, I mean, these are networks of scholars that go all the way you know, to Morocco in the west, uh, you know, to Europe in, in the
0: north, uh, and all the way to India in the east. The Canonization of Islamic Law is Social and Intellectual History by Ahmed al shamsi Assistant Professor, of Islamic Studies at the University of Chicago, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. For anyone interested in religion, Islam, Islamic law, or a model of a masterful social and intellectual history, uh, this book really is a must-read. Thank you so much, Ahmad, for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you, and it was wonderful uh, reading your book. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you very much. So this was my conversation with Professor Ahmad Ashamsi about his new book, The Canonization of Islamic Law, A Social and Intellectual History, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please also join us next time for another episode in New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, stay well and stay tuned. Goodbye for now.